Chapter Twenty Eight of Olive. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Olive by Dinah Maria Craig. Chapter Twenty Eight. Well, I never in my life knew such a change as Farnwood has made in Miss Manners, observed old Hannah, the Woodford cottage maid, who, though carefully kept in ignorance of any facts that could betray the secret of Crystal's history, yet seemed at times to bear a secret grudge against her as an interloper. There she comes, riding across the country like some wild thing, she who used to be so prim and precise. "'Poor young creature! She is like a bird just let out of a cage,' said Mrs. Rothsay, kindly. "'It is often so with girls brought up as she has been. Olive, I am glad you never went to school.' Olive's answer was stopped by the appearance of Crystal, followed by one of the young Fledger boys with whom she had become a first-rate favorite. Her fearless frankness, her exuberant spirits, tempered only by her anxiety to appear always the grand lady, made her a welcome guest at Farnwood Hall. Indeed, she was rarely at home, save when appearing, as now, on a hasty visit, which quite disturbed Mrs. Rothsay's placidity, and almost drove old Hannah crazy. "'He is not come yet, you see,' Crystal said, with a mysterious nod to Charlie Fledger. "'I thought we should outride him. A parson never can manage a pony.' "'But he will surely be here soon.' "'Who will be here soon?' asked Olive, considerably surprised. "'Are you speaking of Mr. Gwynne?' "'Mr. Gwynne, no! Far better fun than that, isn't it, Charlie? Shall we tell the secret or not? Or else shall we tell half of it and let her puzzle it out till he comes?' The boy nodded assent. "'Well, then, there is coming to see you to-day a friend of Charlie's, who only arrived at Farnwood last night, and since then has been talking of nothing else but his old idol, Miss Olive Rothsay. So I told him to meet me here, and lo, he comes.' There was a hurried knock at the door, and immediately the little parlour was graced by the presence of an individual, whom Olive did not recognise in the least. He seemed about twenty, slight and tall, of a complexion red and white, his features pretty though rather girlish. Olive bowed to him in undisguised surprise, but the moment he saw her his face became celestial rosy red, apparently from a habit he had, in common with other bashful youths, of blushing on all occasions. "'I see you do not remember me, Miss Rothsay. Of course I could not expect it, but I have not forgotten you.' Olive, though still doubtful, instinctively offered him her hand. The tall youth took it eagerly, and as he looked down upon her, something in his expression reminded her of a face she had herself once looked down upon, her little knight of the garden at Old Church. In the impulse of the moment she called him again by his old name. "'Lyle! Lyle Derwent!' "'Yes, it is indeed I,' cried the young man. "'Oh, Miss Rothsay, you can't tell how glad I am to meet you again. I am glad, too.' and Olive regarded him with that half-mournful curiosity with which we trace the lineaments of some long-forgotten face, belonging to that olden time, between which and now a whole lifetime seems to have intervened. "'Is that little Lyle Derwent?' cried Mrs. Rothsay, catching the name. "'How very strange! Come hither, my dear boy. Alas, I cannot see you. Let me put my hand on your head.' But she could not reach it, he was grown so tall. She seemed startled to think how time had flown. "'He is quite a man now, Mamma," said Olive. "'You know we have not seen him for many years.' Lyle added, blushing deeper than before. "'The last time, I remember it well, was in the garden one Sunday in spring, nine years ago.' Nine years ago! 
"'Is it then nine years since my Angus died?' murmured the widow, and a grave silence spread itself over them all. In the midst of it Crystal and Charlie, seeing this meeting was not likely to produce the fun they expected, took the opportunity of escaping. Then came the questions, which after so long a period one shrinks from asking, afraid of answer. Olive learnt that old Mr. Derwent had ceased to scold, and poor Bob played his mischievous pranks no more. Both lay quiet in Old Church's churchyard. Worldly losses, too, had chanced, until the sole survivor of the family found himself very poor. "'I should not even have gone to college,' said Lyle, "'but for the kindness of my brother-in-law, Harold Gwynne.' Olive started. "'Oh, true, I forgot all about that. Then he has been a good brother to you,' added she, with a feeling of pleasure and interest. "'He has, indeed. When my father died I had not a relative in the world, save a rich old uncle who wanted to put me in his counting-house.' but Harold stood between us and saved me from a calling I hated, and when my uncle turned me off he took me home. Yes, I am not ashamed to say that I owe everything in the world to my brother Harold. I feel this the more, because he was not quite happy in his marriage. She did not suit him, my sister Sarah." "'Indeed,' said Olive, and changed the conversation. After tea, Lyle, who appeared rather a sentimental young gentleman, proposed a moonlight walk in the garden. Miss Crystal, after eyeing Olive and her cavalier with a mixture of amusement and vexation, as if she did not like to miss so excellent a chance of fun and flirtation, consoled herself with ball-playing and Charlie Fludger. As their conversation grew more familiar, Olive was rather disappointed in Lyle. In his boyhood she had thought him quite a little genius, but the bud had given more promise than the flower was ever likely to fulfill. Now she saw in him one of those not uncommon characters, who, with sensitive feeling and some graceful talent, yet never rise to the standard of genius. Strength, daring, and above all originality were wanting in his mind. With all his dreamy sentiment, his lip library of perpetually quoted poets, and his own numberless scribblings, of which he took care to inform Miss Rothsay, Lyle Derwent would probably remain to his life's end a mere poetical gentleman. Olive soon divined all this and she began to weary a little of her companion and his vague sentimentalities, in linked sweetness long drawn out. Besides, thoughts much deeper had haunted her at times during the evening, thoughts of the marriage which had been not quite happy. This fact scarcely surprised her. The more she began to know of Mr. Gwynne, and she had seen a great deal of him considering the few weeks of their acquaintance, the more she marveled that he had ever chosen Sarah Derwent for his wife. Their union must have been like that of night and day, fierce fire and unstable water. Olive longed to fathom the mystery, and could not resist saying, "'You were talking of your sister a while ago. I stopped you, for I saw it pained Mamma. But now I should so like to hear something about my poor Sarah.' "'I can tell you little, for I was a boy when she died. But things I then little noticed I put together afterwards. It must have been quite a romance, I think. You know my sister had a former lover, Charles Geddes. Do you remember him?" "'I do, well,' and Olive sighed, perhaps over the remembrance of the dream born in that fairy time, her first girlish dream of ideal love. He was at sea when Sarah married. On his return the news almost drove him wild. I remember his coming in the garden, our old garden, you know, where he and Sarah used to walk. He seemed half mad, and I went to him, and comforted him as well I could, though little I understood his grief. 
"'Perhaps I should now,' said Lyle, lifting his eyes with rather a doleful, sentimental air, which, alas, was all lost upon his companion. "'Poor Charles,' she murmured, "'but tell me more.' He persuaded me to take back all her letters, together with one from himself, and give them to my sister the next time I went to Harbury. I did so. Well I remember that night. Harold came in and found his wife crying over the letters. In a fit of jealousy he took them and read them all through, together with that of Charles. He did not see me or know the part I had in the matter, but I shall never forget him." "'What did he do?' asked Olive eagerly. Strange that her question and her thoughts were not of Sarah, but of Harold. Do? Nothing. But his words, I remember them distinctly, they were so freezing, so stern. He grasped her arm and said, Sarah, when you said you loved me you uttered a lie. When you took your marriage oath you vowed a lie. Every day since that you have smiled in my face you have looked a lie. Henceforth I will never trust you or any woman. "'And what followed?' cried Olive, now so strongly interested that she never paused to think if she had any right to ask these questions. Soon after Sarah came home to us. She did not stay long, and then returned to Harbury. Harold was never unkind to her that I know. But somehow she pined away, the more so after she heard of Charles Geddes' sudden death. "'Alas! He died too?' "'Yes, by an accident his own recklessness caused.' but he was weary of his life, poor fellow. Well, Sarah never quite recovered that shock. After little Eily was born she lingered a few weeks and then died. It was almost a relief to us all. What? Did you not love your sister? Of course I did, but then she was older than I and had never cared for me much. Now as to Harold I owe him everything. He has been to me less like a brother than a father. Not in affection, perhaps that is scarcely in his nature but in kindness and in counsel. There is not in the world a better man than Harold Gwynne." Olive replied warmly, "'I am sure of it, and I like you the more for acknowledging it.' Then in some confusion she added, "'Pardon me, but I had quite gone back to the old times when you were my little pet. I really must learn to show more formality and respect to Mr. Derwent.' "'Don't say Mr. Derwent. Pray call me Lyle as you used to do.' "'That I will, with pleasure.